Okay, as I mentioned earlier, we're uh, working our way through the book of James. I'm going to move this podium over. That's James said I should. <laughs> <That's it>. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's really easy when we're following along in uh, a series which is what we're going through, uh, for me to just jump right in because I help work on the series along with James and Pastor Kevin and a few others. So um, when Christy made these arrangements, <laughs> unbeknownst to her husband, it was really simple for me because I knew all I had to do is figure out where Kevin was going to stop. And then I knew I, where I was going to start. So uh, it, it was rather uh, interesting because, of course, uh, Kevin clearly didn't know his wife had planned this so perfectly. So Kevin gets the information, as we learned last week, and then Kevin calls me right away. He says, well, I, I understand you're preaching. I said, well, yeah, I yeah. am. And he just couldn't believe, of course, I never let on at any point that, uh, that I was going to be doing that. So uh, that was really a great job on Christie's part, completely keep him in the dark. And then for him to call me up like, wow, uh, okay, I guess you're going to be preaching. Yes, I will. I just need to know when you're going to be done, at what section. So I get to pick up, we're in James 1, 22 through 27. James 1, 22 through 27. Uh, you can turn there in your Bibles. If you wish to follow along. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and the religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So, as we look at the, the, this passage, as Pastor Kevin's been pointing out, the book of James is very similar in the, in its, the idea of wisdom literature. Uh, James goes along, and it almost sounds like he's in a, a staccato. I mean, he's moving from this point, and then boom, moves to that point, and then boom, moves back to this point. Each time delivering nuggets of wisdom for us to pay attention to. And, and so if you're not paying attention, it's easy to miss where he's going, because it almost seems when we get to 22 to 27, well, we just left off somewhere, and it seems like, well, gosh, I, I didn't quite get what he was doing. Well, he actually ties this all together from earlier parts in the book of James, in, in the first parts. So let's start with the obvious. James tells us that if we hear the word and do nothing about the word we heard, we fail you fail, okay? So if you hear the word, and you don't do anything about it, well then, you 
either A, weren't paying attention, or B, you failed to act on what you heard. So I think a, a simple illustration for, for any of us that are believers here that we can identify with is somewhere in your life, someone at some point presented the Word of God to you. Either you read the Word of God, or someone, a friend of yours presented the Word of God, or somehow the Word of God was given to you in such a way that you understood that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. And so what did you do? You acted on that Word of God. You acted on what you heard or what you read, and then you confessed your sins to Jesus. You called upon Him to become your Savior. That is acting on the Word of God. That's what you and I, all of us that are believers, did at some point in our lives. And so, he's saying if you fail to do that, then what did you do? I mean, here was presented your opportunity. Each of us that are believers or call ourselves Christians acted on that opportunity, on that Word that was presented to us. And so, we can see in a practical sense how this works, what James is speaking about, very practically. So, as we dig into the scriptures, let's look at some of the kind of obvious. We start out with hearing and doing, or as he's saying, hearing and not doing, all right? So, let us just say for illustration purposes that you got to listen to your favorite preacher, whoever that favorite preacher is, whether it's Pastor Kevin or Charles Spurgeon or Billy Graham or John Calvin or... George Whitfield, or some of them guys around. But D.L. Moody, you could still listen to some of D.L. Moody. It's really scratchy and not that good quality. But you could listen to And let's say you sat you soaked under that preaching and teaching day in and day out, and day in and day out. But you didn't act on anything you heard. You didn't bother to do anything that was said. You didn't take the time to reflect on what was taught. In fact, you listened to that preaching and maybe you got so good at it, you could even parrot some of what was preached. Maybe you could even quote that great preacher. But of what value would that be if you never acted on what was preached? It would be of no value to you. It would be just went in one ear and out the other ear. It's nice if you sat there and pontificated on everything you heard and could spew it all back to somebody else. But if you don't act on it, what good is it? It's of no value to you. It, in fact, could create a situation where a person actually becomes arrogant. I listen to the finest preacher. I listen to, Cap to Pastor Kevin all the time. He preaches fabulous. Well, what are you doing about that? Are you challenged? If you're challenged, what are you doing about what he's challenging you with? If you're doing nothing about what he's challenging you with, what's the point? And that is what it is. You know, Pastor Kevin, it's, I, I know we all know, we've listened to him at any point, it's really challenging for him when he preaches a strong word because his whole week's been buffeted by that word. And so he comes up here and you can tell, it weighs on It should weigh on us when he preaches that word. The same way it weighed on him. And that's the point of what I believe James is trying to get us to understand. <coughs> there needs to be a, a change. There needs to be something that comes forth from that preaching that's affecting us. James says this type of a person is like a person who looks in a mirror and then walks off forgetting what they even look like. Isn't that uh, kind of an odd illustration? I mean, didn't that ever strike you as kind of a, like a strange illustration? But... 
But it came home to me this week. I was in this elderly person's home doing my inspection, and this elderly person had mirrors all over this house. I do mean they were everywhere. You couldn't go down a hallway, you couldn't go in a bedroom, you certainly couldn't go to the bathroom without seeing yourself in a mirror somewhere. And uh, I'm like, wow, this person really wants to see themselves, I guess. And so you go into the bathroom, and, uh, you know, like first you come out of the hallway, and they got all these little mirrors. You, you may remember these were from the 60s and 70s. You know, they had the gold etching <coughs> into the mirror, and they kind of like, oh, well, they're kind of gaudy and ugly now. But they were really in vogue back in that era. And you, you walk by, and you got all, and it's hard to see yourself. It's got this gold etched into it, just spot yourself in somewhere in that, I don't know. But it's, this is in her home, and I go into the bathroom, and here's this big mirror, and then there's a little, little tiny mirror right in the corner of the thing. I'm like, wow, you stick your face in that mirror, I'll tell you what, you can see every single port in your skin. I'm like, wow, I mean, just like, woo, you can't miss that thing. I mean, every little pockmark that's possibly in your face, you can see it all. And I'm looking at it like, hey, well, this lady with either blind, she really want to take a good look. Well, I don't know, being that she's female, maybe, you know, it's a little more important. Got to be able to see where to pluck those hairs out or put, do something to your eyebrows or, you know, I don't know, clip hair out of your nose. Well, no, women don't do that. Guys do that. I think guys only do I don't know. Isn't that the weirdest thing? You know, we get older, the hair falls out of our head, it comes out of our nose and then out of our ears. What's with that, isn't it? Okay, digress. Forget that. All right, anyhow. So I'm looking at that and going like, oh, okay, I, I can kind of see how this works. I mean, you're, you're looking really intently in that mirror, that little mirror. I mean, you can see every single polemic. You can see really clear every single thing. I think what, what we can see here is James is saying, look, the Word of God is this mirror. And you look at that thing and it shows every single fault, every single thing that's possible, every blemish is visible. You can see it. Now, if you're then pricked by that, it strikes your heart. I need to change. But after you've done that, you've, you've seen that, that preaching, that word came to you in a powerful way, and it really pricked you, and it's like that mirror, and you see that blemish, and then you just walk out the door and forgot about it. And I think that's what James is saying. He's saying it's just like that person. You looked in the mirror, you saw it, and you walked out the door, and you forgot what you looked like. It's like you saw those blemishes, you saw those problems, you saw those issues, and then you just walked up the door and forgot about it. That's exactly what he doesn't want us to do. That's exactly what he's saying. Don't do that. Because if the Holy Spirit comes at you with, the, let's say, the, the tweezers, or, or maybe a scalpel, or maybe pruning uh, shears, really big stuff, you know, well, we need to be willing to have that done. But instead, if we just run out the door and say, well, yeah, that was great, that was wonderful, it really freaked my heart for a minute, and I'm gone. It didn't do no value. There was no value in it. It didn't do anything for you. And I read that, and I was like, hmm. That reminded me of Matthew 7, 24, where Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the wind blew, and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. We just sang that song, right? Mm -hmm. But everyone who hears their, these words of mine and does not put them into practice 
is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the stream rose, the wind blew, and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. That is the peril we all face when we hear the preaching and do nothing about what we heard. We build our house on that shifting sand of self-illusion, self-deceit, which is the worst kind of deception there is. Because we're doing it to ourselves. Verse 25 in James 1 is very interesting that it's telling us there is a perfect law of liberty that sometimes is misunderstood by the reader being the Mosaic law instead of the perfect law of love described by Jesus in his summation of the law in Matthew 22, 37-40. Most of you put this or committed this to memory. And he said to him, answering the question, which is the greatest of the commandments, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. I believe James purposely juxtaposed these two contradictory terms of law and liberty to get, if you will, the attention of his Jewish readers, to get them to understand what the law and liberty is that we have. And what is that liberty that he's talking about? Because it would seem, we think of law, we don't think of liberty. We think of rules, we think of, you must do this, that, and the other thing, you must follow this exactly, precisely like that, and that's what we think of. We don't think of it as liberty. Yet, Love is given to us liberally by God himself. And so we have liberty as a result of that love that he's given to us. So as we read that, we see here that the readers force to understand there's no one righteous but Christ, and only through Christ can one become righteous. It is the application of the law of love that leads us to repentance, and that repentance bears fruit in the form of godliness apart from the law, but through the grace extended to us through Christ's sacrifice on the cross. If our righteousness can only come through Christ, where's our boasting? We don't have any ground to boast. We can't say, oh, look at me how great I am. I followed the law right to the teeth. No, can't do any of that. We can only boast in Christ because Christ gave us what we have. And so we have none because we're totally dependent on Christ. Furthermore, James says, whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, he will be blessed in what he does. Or she. The word continues in the Greek, paramento. That Greek word continues in Greek is paramento. And what that means, or we think of it, it's a root word we use permanent. Okay, it's something that stays fast or comes alongside, from which we get the, the idea that as we abide in the law of love, we are saturated by it and we become doers of this law in our actions towards others. We walk righteously before the Lord. James is really causing his Jewish listeners to think entirely different way, and that is his point here. To get them to move away from what they grew up in. Realize, these Jewish believers in particular, they grew up in a very specific way, just as James did. 
just as Paul did, just as all the apostles, they grew up under the law. And they knew that they had to do X, Y, and Z, and they had to do it perfectly, and etc., cetera, etc., cetera, to please God. And now, James is saying, look, yes, I know what the law is, and what it says, but this perfect law that Jesus said is this law of love, and we're to walk in this law. And so he creates this sense that causes his readers, his listeners, to think in a different way, in a very different way. Just try to imagine this. If your whole life you're thinking a certain direction, and then now suddenly you're told you have to think a whole different direction. That's very hard to do. That's not that simple. Um, I, I think for many of us, because we, we are reading this post-2000 years, right, uh, we think, oh, snap with a finger. Of course it just switched like a light switch from one to the other. No, they didn't. Of course they didn't. It took time, all right? For us that have lived lives, for some who came to Christ later in life, it's not a snap to the finger and all of a sudden everything's different, all right? It, it doesn't work. Like, you still have a lot of stuff you got to get rid of along the way. you got to figure out a few things that, now i got to think differently. And the Holy Spirit within you is the guiding light and principle to help you. And as you're reading the Word and understanding and digesting, the Holy Spirit gives you understanding. And you realize you have to put stuff aside. Those things need to go away. And so that's part of this process. I think Paul uh, does something similar. If you want to turn to there, it's Romans 3, 25 through 28. Romans 3, 25 through 28. And I think here, although Romans is geared towards Gentiles, he's also including his Jewish listener here. When he says, because of his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So you can't brag. You can't say, look at me, how great I am and how wonderful I did this and how I did the law and how I helped the law. All that boasting is set aside because you know everything we're doing is dependent on what Christ did for us. And that is what we're to give liberally to others. That same love we receive, we liberally give to others. And that's what we're supposed to do. Paul, very specifically, is pointing out that the Mosaic Law, as wonderful as it was as a schoolmaster, as we understand it, to point out sin, which it did a fine job of, did not bring about the ultimate effect of the salvation that Christ brought to us through his sacrifice on the cross. Then James goes on even further by saying that men, women, who proceed in their lives by applying the law of love will be blessed in their deeds, not by their deeds. Blessed in their deeds. There's a difference, right? Not by them. The word blessed here in the Greek is makarios. Makarios is a, it's an interesting word because I can remember my mother saying this many times that, uh, and I've told some, some of those stories from my childhood, but 
I would do whatever mom, dad asked me to do, and I had a fairly compliant child, so if they asked me to do stuff, I pretty much did that stuff. But my mother noticed that a lot of the stuff I would do would turn out really good, okay, just for whatever reason. And she would say to me, Ise Makarios, you're blessed. Okay, she would say, you're blessed. All right, so what was that blessing? She was just pointing out that for whatever reason, God blesses you in the things that you do. We are blessed in the things that we do. The things we are doing is to further advance the kingdom out of the heart of love as opposed to the, the duty aspect of the law. Two different things there. So the word blessed here in the Greek, makarios, which means possessing the favor of God, experiencing, experiencing spiritual prosperity. Wow, isn't that great? Spiritual prosperity. That's something for all of us. Spiritual prosperity. That's the kind that we really should want. Okay? This, to me, sounded like, as I read this, this sounds like a promise that's being conveyed to us by the Holy Spirit that God is extending to us. And so when we see this, we realize that God, through the Holy Spirit, Living in us is giving us opportunities to be blessed spiritually and to pass those blessings on to others. I liked what uh, Matthew Henry said here. God's blessedness does not lie in knowing, lie in knowing the will of God, but doing the will of God. See, like I said earlier, you can hear all the preaching you want to the cows come home, but if you don't do any of that stuff, no. You may have heard all about the will of God, but until you do the will of God, you haven't walked in what God told you to do. And that's the big difference there. So what exactly is that we are supposed to be doing? James jumps back into the wisdom literature, uh, literature format by reminding us of what we just set up in verse 19, being slow to speak, i.e. controlling our tongues. So James says that a man who claims to be religious but fails to control his tongue, is his practice is worthless. In other words, his form of religion is of no value. So we've met these folks that are religious kind of folks. But you don't like hanging out with them because all they seem to be able to do is tear you down, make you feel terrible, wish you weren't around them. All right? They can't control their tongue. And so uh, their religion, eh, I'd rather not be around that too much myself. And that's what James is saying. That, that kind of religion we can all pass on. We can, we can do without that. That kind of religion. This reminds me again, and this is a parable that is in Luke 18.10, if you want to turn it. You'll know this one very well. Luke 18.10 Two men went up into the temple to pray. The one a Pharisee, the other a public. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank ye thee that I am not as other men are, except extortioners, unjust adulterers, and even as this publican. I fast twice in the week, I give tithes of all that I possess, and the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. See, that one guy, he knew exactly what he was all about. And he recognized it, and he prayed that way. So we can see what worthless religion does for us. Absolutely nothing. It brings about arrogance, and that drives people away from us, not towards us. The humility of the publican brought about the justification for his prayers. In other words, he knew that he was unworthy, an unworthy sinner, but his freedom was being received through the love of Christ. And that's where it was at for him. So what is this pure religion? It's interesting to me that we have uh, here given a twofold approach how we practice pure religion. Um, perhaps a better word to me, as I was looking at that, pure religion, maybe a better way is to think of it as pure worship or true worship of God. Maybe that's a better way of thinking. First, we are told to perform charity towards and for fatherless and widows in their affliction. If you read verse 27 quickly, you miss the obvious that James says, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father. He's relating something here very clearly. The Father. Uh, we were talking about earlier, I think Jim brought it up, well, this Trinitarian talk. Boy, it sure would be easier if we just, just did away with all that. But, nah. So, here we go. We're going to drop into that real quick. Uh, relating us to the triune God's nature by being a father to the fatherless. We often say we are the hands and feet of Jesus to the dying and to this dead world. We, you've heard that. We've all said that. We're the hands and the feet. We are the ones that go out and help the, our neighbors that are in need. We're the ones that go to the hospitals or go to the prisons and do the thing. We're the ones that they see. When people see us acting in the name of Christ, we're the ones that we see. We're that representation to them. And so men have a responsibility before God to, meet, to be not just fathers to their own children, but those children who do not have fathers. Because whatever the situation is in their particular lives. I, I can't speak for every man here, but I'm, I'm going to guess most of us have had opportunities to help be fatherly to other youngsters along the way. I've been fortunate enough uh, to operate in a, a surrogate fatherly way towards many children over the years because of whatever happened with their parents or father, whatever. And I'm sure many of you have too. And there's a blessing in it. And that blessing is that we have an opportunity to impact these young lives for Christ in a way that they can relate to what a father is. Think about that. We have a problem, particularly in our nation, with fatherless children. Okay? For whatever the reasons. I'm not going to go into all the details. But I think that's why there's so many of these programs that are out there that try to help I'll bring fathers into these lives. I was listening to a program, I think it was focused on the family, where this gentleman, his, his program, that's exactly what they did. They brought mentors in that acted as fathers to these children. And, and the fruit of that ministry is fabulous because many of these youngsters, for whatever period of time, it may be short, it may be long, 
have a man in their lives that presents to them a gospel message, something clear, that gives them a representation in a physical sense of what God the Father is intending. It's not perfect, clearly. Only God's perfect. But it's an opportunity that we have. And I think it's what, what we're being told here. In 2 Corinthians 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. That's who Jesus is. That's who the Father is to us. The trying nature of God our Father is the Father of mercies and all comfort. These are the very nature of God and how we as men can be fathers to children other than our own children. I hope we're all good fathers to our own children as well. Uh, I look, obviously, because I have one child and many of you have raised many children. And so you've had plenty of opportunities. But I, I know as, as a father the uh, amount of effort that dads put in they're trying to be good fathers to their children. And now just imagine those children that don't have a father and how much more difficult that is. It's not to diminish the role of women that have had to take on that dual responsibility at all. Uh, I applaud them because it's certainly hard. And my wife and I helped several women over the years that were placed in that situation and trying to help with their kids. But... That's something we have a responsibility as the body of believers to do, is to help out in any way we can. The next thing I looked at here when I'm looking at this is that we also have this statement here that we're supposed to be involved with the widows and bring comfort to them. We have widows here in this congregation, quite a few. And I know Pastor Kevin has told me he's has involvement with them and, and certain things go on. And I know many of you are involved with the widows that are that are here in our congregation. Uh, we have an obligation to them. And that obligation is to, again, present the love of Christ and to help physically when we can help in whatever way we can help those women. And it's not just here in our body. It's in our community as well. Those are opportunities that we need to take advantage of. And to, again, present Christ. I, I was reading through one of my uh, other commentaries, and I, I found this. This is in Clarkie's uh, commentary on this passage. I thought it was helpful myself. That religion is pure and undefiled, which is so before God and the Father. That is right, which is so in God's eye, and which is chiefly aims at his approbation or approval or Praise. True religion teaches us to do everything as in the presence of God and to seek his favor and study to please him in all our actions. The, the part that caught me was we're doing it as if he's in our presence. We are in his presence when we're doing things. I don't know if anybody ever thinks about it. I sure don't. But when we're doing things in the name of the Lord, realize that he is present. Right? He's there. And so if we would think about it in that term, that's something to consider. Do we ever consider what we are doing in regards to our lives as if we are doing it in God's presence? Again, the Holy Spirit of God is in us, and we are God's representatives here on earth. So we bring God with us into each situation, and 
And although we may gain the benefit of feeling useful in the kingdom of God, we much more importantly convey to others their significance to God, their Father. And I think that's really very important. Finally, we see one more thing that makes our religion slash worship pure before God. It is remaining undefiled or unspotted by this world's attractions or allurements. Again, Clarke is helpful in this, and so I'm going to quote him again. An unspotted life must accompany an unfeigned love and charity to keep himself unspotted from the world. The world is apt to spot and blemish the soul, and it is hard to live in it and have to do with it and not be defiled. But this must be our constant endeavor. Our constant endeavor. Wow. Now, when I read that, my first thought is, that's impossible. Good luck doing that. But, I also realize that that's what we're called to do. So I had, yesterday I'm going to go do an inspection at this guy's crawl space, but he's already informed me, it's up in Grangeville. Dan goes, because Dan works with me, Grangeville is like no other. Because you're going to be in the mud. For you folks that live in Grangeville, you know about that. Mud and crawl space. And it's not just any old mud, it's gooey mud. It's just like, you're going in there, you, you just, it's going to be bad. So the guy needs me to go there because his neighbor changed the grade of his property, and now all the water from next door neighbor's been going into his crawl space. And he hasn't realized that until one day, apparently he looks at his crawl space, and there's a whole lot of water down there. He's like, uh-oh. And so another friend says, ooh, you might have mold out there. You could have a problem. You better call a mold inspector. So I get close. So I'm like, yeah, he's helped me out. Well, the guy's name is Nick Petrus. Guess what? That would make him grief. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Nick Petrus. And I go, uh, and me, I said, he can't. I said, do you speak Greek? He goes, uh, yeah, like a child. Uh, I came home a long time ago. I don't speak any Greek. I go, oh, okay, fine. We won't have that conversation. So I'm pretty sure I won't be finding Baklava when I get over your house. <laughs> anyway, so, uh, so then he, he leaves me a phone message the day before we get there. Tanya, who works with me, she, I said, okay, get the messages. You know, I'm driving. And the messages, Nick says, uh, when you're when you're done with the, the crawl space, you know, you you're welcome. You come on and, and take a shower in the house and, and clean up and a change of clothing and, and etc. and all this stuff. And I'm laughing. And Tanya's, who's this weirdo? <laughs> I'm not taking a shower in this guy's house. Where does this guy a nut? Where, 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 where do you get this guy? It's calm down. <laughs> He's never had an inspection. He's like, he has no idea what I'm gonna do when I get there. <laughs> like, oh wait out. So anyway, he doesn't know. I show up. And, and, you know, we go over the whole thing, and, I, I you know, the crawl space is a mess, and of course I suit up. I wear, I'm covered head to toe, every inspection, crawl spaces are attic, I'm completely covered. Well, he doesn't know that until I get there. Oh, okay, that's how that's going to happen. And so, for me, it's, you know, it's a simple every day of the week, that's what we get to do. The part that was interesting to me in all that is his understanding was that, well, I was going to certainly be completely soiled to the, the very, my britches. We didn't understand that I had a complete covering. We do too. It's called the full armor of God. We, we tend to forget that. I say, gosh, I'm going to go out in the world and not be soiled. Well, I, I, that's why we're instructed to put on that full armor of God. I know we forget about it. I sure, certainly do as well. But that's why we're instructed to do that. Because there's a whole lot of soiling going on out there. And so we're, 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 we're trying to not be soiled by this world. 
And so I think that's that's part of that uh, whole concept of how we avoid that. I'm going I'm to wrap this all up by quoting Greg Laurie, and I, I, I like what he had to say about this, so I'm going to read this. Have you ever worn an outfit that you didn't want to spill anything on? Doesn't it seem that you always spill on it? If I wear jeans and a t-shirt, I don't spill anything. But if I'm wearing a suit and I'll be going out to a meeting, maybe get a little talk, I will always spill on myself. It happens immediately, a big stain somewhere. Even when I cover myself in a napkin, inevitably a big glob will find its way through one microscopic gap in my napkin. To try to keep oneself unspotted takes effort. While the scripture says we are to keep or are, are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, that's First Peter 1 uh, 5, we are also to keep ourselves pure, First Timothy 5.22. Rather than being a contradiction, this shows us there is God's part and there is our part in keeping ourselves unspotted from the world. God will keep us. The question is, do we want to do that? You see, true spirituality is not measured primarily by what we say, but by what we do. Truly, godly people will come humbly to his word, recognizing their great need for him and his truth. Truly, godly people will control their words, Truly godly people will reach out to those who are hurting and will keep themselves unspotted by the world. By the world. In short, truly godly people will be doers of his word, not just hearers. Let's pray. Father, my prayer is that I would be a doer and not just a hearer. I pray that for all of us. Father God, that your Holy Spirit that has been working in our hearts and our minds as I presented this word, Father, that we would not walk away and forget what we look like. That we would not walk out the door and whatever the Holy Spirit pricked in our hearts, that we would just forget about that. Father God, that we would truly feel the need to walk in this life in an unblemished way. That, Father God, that we would truly desire to keep that full arm of God, that we would truly desire to be your hands and feet, that we would truly be that which we're supposed to be, worshiping you in spirit and in truth, and by being friends and fathers to the fatherless, helping the widow and the orphan, doing those things that you've instructed us to do and that we know in our hearts we're supposed to do. Lord God, give us the strength to do that, which you've called us to do. Lord God, that our hearts would be strengthened, empowered by your word and through your Holy Spirit, to be obedient to you. We thank you, Lord God, for all you've done. In the name of Jesus, I ask you.